Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together, we are the Anxiety Sisters. Hello, Anxiety Sisters, and welcome to our show. We have a neuroscientist in the house. Woohoo! Woo! Our guest today, <laughs> you know how excited we get she's about She's fun. That. She's fun. <laughs> she's fun and funny. Our, our guest today is Dr. Wendy Suzuki, who is an award winning professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University, where she studies the effect of physical activity and meditation on the brain. She is also a TED speaker many times over and best selling author of the book Healthy Brain, Happy Life which was recently made into a PBS special. Her second book, Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion, will be published in September. So we're really excited that Wendy was able to join us because I know that she's doing all the promotions that, that we're doing. So we got lucky to get her to come onto the show today. Thank you so much for being here, Wendy. Welcome. Thank you for welcoming me here. I mean, what better podcast to go on than Spin Cycle with the Anxiety Sisters? <laughs> yes, yeah, so before That's the show, great. we were talking about how, you know, we've all experienced the Spin Cycle and, and, and Wendy was telling us that her Spin Cycle is often at night. That what if list. Yeah, a lot of people have that, that night anxiety, yeah. you know, that before I go to bed, my, my head starts spinning, you know, I start spinning out of control, but we want to, we want to talk to you about the title of your book. Yeah. You know, and you talk about good anxiety. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about good anxiety? Yes. So, you know, um, we wanted to choose a title that would grab people's attention and make them say, Ooh, what, what is that good anxiety? And it, I think we found a perfect title because it's not only kind of attention grabbing, it makes you scratch your head, but it really is at the core of how we, um, uh, how I developed this idea um, that anxiety for most of us is just something you want to, you know, kick out the front door. We don't <laughs> want it anymore. Yes. But at its core, from an evolutionary point of view, Anxiety and the stress response that causes those negative feelings is protective. It right. is helpful. It actually gets us into motion. It is the energy. It is the wind in our sails. And how could that be? It, it, it's a essential to our life, yet we don't want it at all. How, how come that is? Well, I know that our more than 200,000 anxiety sisters out there are going to say, where can I buy me some good anxiety? Because I have the other kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We all do. We all do. And, um, you know, the other um, thing that I'm just so passionate about is um, I think it's important for everybody to realize that um, the goal and the goal of the book is not to negate all those negative emotions mm -hmm. and, and be in a state of bliss and happiness all the mm -hmm. time. I love joy and happiness, just like the next person, right. but we are complex humans with a whole cavalcade of emotions. And we, those, all of those emotions help us understand something about ourselves. So mm. 
easier to pull in, you know, joyful. Oh, I just want more of that. But the warning emotions, the fear, the worry, all those other emotions that come up with anxiety, those are the protective emotions. And part of the message of the book is learn how to read them. It's not, you don't want them to go away. Um, Mm -hmm. They will always be with us. I love this kind of practical. It's like, that helped me, that helped me um, adapt to my own anxiety when I realized Mm -hmm. that is there for a reason. I'm feeling that. What does that mean to me? Now, we we can't appreciate it if you're really, really deep, you know, if you're so deep. But I, that's also part of the good anxiety. Feel those feelings, but uh, build up the muscle to learn how to use them and inform yourself about your life. Mm. Wow. That's great. So I, so I guess you, you say that anxiety is the most misunderstood emotion because people always assume it's just bad. Exactly. Try and get rid of it. They turn away from it. And um, I say that the thing that I learned um, that was most surprising when I was writing this book is, I'm, you know, going through it is like, I found myself making friends with my mm. own anxiety. And it's like, oh, really? Is that is that <laughs> really where it's going? And yes, mm-hmm. it is. And, um, you know, it's one of those friends, a little, it's a prickly friend, you know, <laughs> not, not necessarily the warm and fuzzy friend, but it, it's that prickly friend that it's says- It's like an in-law. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Perfect analogy. Your anxiety, it is like that prickly in-law that has really good insights for you, but it's sometimes hard to listen and hear, hear that feedback. Mm-hmm. But it's knowledge, it is wisdom that comes from your anxiety and all those negative emotions. And um, that's, I think that's one of the really, really valuable lessons in um, that I learned in, in developing and writing this book. And I think that I, that's uh, one of the key lessons I want to share with your audience. We agree with you 100%. We are always telling our fellow sisters that um, you can't fight it. It's going to be there. It's going to be there. I mean, you might not have chosen it like an in-law. You didn't pick it, but that person is going to be in your life. And that, that anxiety, if you're a human being, part of the experience, it's going to be in your life. So I always say, I talk to my anxiety and I always Mm -hmm. say, fine, you're here. Great. But you're not driving. Mm -hmm. Uh, Until about 20 years ago, it was believed that the brain didn't really change much other than Mm -hmm. just through, like it grew and then through decline and aging, it, it declined. Or if there was trauma or injury, Obviously, there were changes, but really, in, only in the last 20 years have neuroscientists grasped the idea of neuroplasticity or that the brain does change. Right. And, uh, you're, I know that's something you study quite a bit. Can you talk to us about that? Sure, hmm. sure. So um, really, the theme of brain plasticity or how our brain uh, allows us to learn and change and grow in response to our external environment. Um, that has been kind of the passion of my entire career. My mm-hmm. undergraduate mentor um, essentially uh, discovered adult brain plasticity in her wow. brown, wow. groundbreaking experiments in the 1960s before I got to her lab. But um, at that time in the 60s, absolutely, the scientists, the scientific community did not believe that the adult brain had the capacity to change in any meaningful way um, because there was no scientific evidence to to show that change. And she said, 
I don't think that's right. And she did mm. very, very simple but elegant experiment to show it for the first time. And the simple experiment was she took a group of rats and she randomized them into two different living environments. The first environment she called an enriched environment, which was a big space with lots of other rats to play with, lots of toys that got changed out all the time. I like to call it the Disney world of rat cages. <laughs> For a rat, you wanted to be in that enriched environment. And uh, the other group of rats got free food and water like the rats in Disney World, but they were in what they called an impoverished environment with no toys, maybe one other rat uh, and, and nothing really to do all day. And so if the adult brain, the adult rat brain didn't change at all, then three months later, there should be absolutely no difference between the brains in the impoverished environment and the brains in Disney World. Well, the different brains in Disney World, the outer covering of those brains, the cortex actually grew. It got thicker. And so wow. that was the first demonstration. Why did it get thicker? What was the mechanism that took? We're still trying to figure that out. But that was the first demonstration. Look, I have physical evidence of hmm. change in adulthood from this positive experience, more uh, movement, more, more um, activity, more visual stimulation changes the brain. And when I learned that the first day of my freshman year, I thought, I want to study that. That is cool. I want to bring that to my brain and I want to know how to harness that power uh, so that everybody can benefit from positive brain plasticity. It's such a hopeful concept. Wow. Yes. Especially for those of us who suffer from brain disorders like anxiety and depression. I mean, there's a lot of implications. Yes. And, and that is that you can essentially, you can train your brain. Yes. Yes. And mm -hmm. that, in fact, is the key for why I'm so optimistic that mm. people can take these directions and uh, toolboxes that we give and change their anxiety. Because I know it can seem like that's just too hard. Maybe other people can do it, but not me. And mm -hmm. I think the key is small, small steps, doable steps. Uh, we give such a big toolbox because I know that not every suggestion will work for everyone. So there's lots of examples, right? Try, sample, make it a smorgasbord and see right. what works for you. We even say that, you know, you need this big toolbox because what works for you on Monday yeah. may not work for you on Tuesday yeah. or Monday yeah. afternoon even, you know, and, and so we all, we need a really big toolbox. And so one of the things we talk about, and I know you know a lot about this, is each time that you're able to use a technique to help you function despite your anxiety, right? Yes. Or help you um, harness the good power of your anxiety, you're changing the neural pathways. Yes, so exactly. Could you talk about that a little for our, for our listeners? Sure, sure. So, you know, um, one of the the most common forms of brain plasticity is what we experience every single day, learning. So mm -hmm. I have never met you, Abby or Maggie, but now we've met. And right. um, even though this is over Zoom, if I pass you on the street, I say, like, oh, wait, don't I know you? Aren't you? Aren't you? Right. Uh, Abby and Maggie of the Anxiety Sisters. And um, uh, so that's People learning. say that all the time. Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> Not to me. Not to, yeah, we're joking. 
Okay, go ahead. Sorry. So, so that is that is learning. That is what we do as humans so well. So every single time you bring new experiences in, it works positively. Sometimes it doesn't work well. Uh, there are small changes. And it's not like every single thing causes a change that happens a long time. But if something works, the best way to make it step repetition. Here are the four mm. things that that make memory stick. Repetition. If you do it all the time, you remember it. That's that's a no brainer. Second, novelty. Our brains are uh, like, if something really, really surprising happened, never happened before, a clown walks through the door over there. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm always going to remember that day that at 730 in the morning, uh, a clown walked through the front door. Emotional resonance makes things stick in your memory. We remember the happiest, most joyful, and the saddest moments of our lives because that's how uh, the amygdala works to enforce those, those memories. And fourth, association. If you can associate a new memory with a well-established memory, it's more likely to be remembered. So, um, so this is what's happening as we are trying new things, we are repeating them and that repetition can be so helpful to make a good habit stick. Interesting. One of the tools that I love to share is what if I help people make more good memories? How does mm. that work? And so here we come to uh, a tool in the toolbox of my book, Good Anxiety called Joy Conditioning. Well, joy conditioning is not automatic, but it is under your conscious control. So here's how it works. Go through your memory of your whole life and pull up the most joyful, the most funny, the most uh, uh, whatever juicy memory that you have. And I recommend that you try and find one with some sort of positive smell associated with it. Why? Because we know that odors are so evocative for memories. They, they're able to be brought back even stronger if you have an olfactory cue. So let me share with you the joy conditioning um, uh, hack that I use in my everyday life. So it comes from a memory that I have of a particularly great yoga class experience. So I went to yoga class and I was, I was particularly, you know, I crushed it. I, I did all my up dogs, my down dog, <laughs> my dog. I was like, oh yeah, I'm doing so well. I'm feeling flexible. And then I got to the very most best uh, um, pose that I do of all time, which is Shavasana. So I'm really good at Shavasana, laying down, doing yes. it, you know, feeling good about myself. But, but the memory isn't that, is isn't that the corpse pose. It is. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's my, that's my expertise too. Exactly. Too. So, yeah, people, people can relate to that because we do yeah. we all do that so well. Um, but I had done, I'm not only doing that well, I'm feeling really good about class and I don't do that all the time. I was a great teacher. And then the teacher came by and she waved um, a hand full of lavender, you know, oil under my nose. My eyes was clo were closed because I was in Shavasana. But then she gave me the most luscious five second unexpected neck massage just when I needed it. And she pushed my shoulders down and then she was gone. And I thought, oh, you know, that feeling that you just got this extra special, wonderful, unexpected gift. Mm -hmm. And so that is my 
joy conditioning memory. And so when I need that feeling, I literally go around with a little vial of lavender essence and I smell it and I just take a moment and go back to that memory. And, um, and it counteracts if I'm having a bad day, if I have anxiety memories coming up, I can use that. And because repetition makes memory stronger, guess what? That memory, that, that beautiful, juicy memory that you chose that you are bringing up again, it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger every time. And that is joy conditioning and everybody can do it and relive the most beautiful moments of your life. Oh, I love that. That's mm. great. That's really great. It's beautiful. Yeah. I, I love the idea of joy conditioning. That's a great term. Another term that you use in your book that, that we both love is um, teaching people how to worry well. Yes. <laughs> yes. We absolutely think that's so brilliant. One of the ways you tell people to learn how to worry well is to supercharge their resilience. Yes. So what does that mean? So um, supercharging your resilience uh, can happen in lots of different ways. And um, the story that I love to share is that, um, did you know that you can, um, you can build your own resilience and, you know, people mm -hmm. want to go, okay, give me the pill to do that. <laughs> But the way to supercharge your resilience and, and make it stronger is to get through as much anxiety and as many hard times as you can. And okay, there, there is a trick. If there is, um, if there is uncontrollable anxiety and, and mm -hmm. you feel out of control, that doesn't build um, super resilience. However, if you go into situations and can have a mindset that, I can get through this. You know, it's not, it's not going to kill me. It's, it's mm -hmm. written every single time I get through. And also very important. You don't have to get through like wonder woman. You just have to survive. That right. can be a little uh, penny in your piggy bank of your piggy bank of resilience that, that builds it all the time. I think those of us that have gone through really difficult uh, um, situations and experiences uh, that, that we all often experience death in the family. I talk about uh, my own experience of, of um, um, uh, losing both my father and my younger brother um, within three months of each other unexpectedly. That, that is not anxiety. That was grief I was going through. And um, I share this story because it turns out to be the origin story of everything we've been talking about. Mm. It made me realize how these negative emotions and these negative experiences can be powerful, good wisdom building, knowledge building for, my, for everybody. Because when I got out of that deep grief that I experienced, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it happened literally the week that I was about to start really writing the book. We had the proposal, we had the outline. At the end of this week, I was gonna start writing and, and uh, my younger brother passed away just unexpectedly. <laughs> oh. And it's like, you know, it, it just hits you like, yes. like nothing you've ever had before. I, I, I've, I've never felt that level of grief and that, that kind of negative emotion in my life ever. 
And I recovered with many of the tools that I talk about, meditation, exercise, reaching out to social people and, and um, reaching out to my friends, family members. And I came out with this, this understanding of how powerful that experience was to allow me to appreciate my own life. All of the family members that I still have is like, oh, I appreciate you so much more. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I didn't love you before, but when you experience that loss, it's, it's permanent. And, and of course, I know it's permanent. I watch, you know, police shows all the time. Everybody's dying all the time. But then it gets real. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a moment where I was working out online with a coach right after, just as I was going through recovery. And this coach, Phoenix said, you know, I've learned my biggest lesson in in working out is that with great pain comes great wisdom. And I Mm -hmm. thought, that's it. I, Mm -hmm. I am reaping the benefit of that wisdom. So much more appreciation of love and community and connection now. And, and because I was about to start the book and I knew that I was dealing with negative emotions, it became a, a mission to find the wisdom. I, I felt like myself ringing out, what is that wisdom that I could mm. pull out of not the grief of losing family members, but the everyday negative emotions and worry and drainage that comes from draining emotions that come from anxiety. I knew mm-hmm. it was something positive there. And that's where these gifts our superpowers came from. I needed mm-hmm. to find those gifts. And I went searching for them because this experience happened right as I started the book. So the book would not have been the same. And uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Maggie and I Thank often you. talk about the psychological immune system. Mm, and, yeah. our, and, and we always tell people, you know, you can do hard things. Yeah. It may not be pretty, you might not look very glamorous doing them. Mm. You know, you might have to crawl through mud. Yeah. But you can do them and emerge on the other side. Exactly. And, and, and every time we do that, we prove it to ourselves that we can. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, so I was talking to an anxiety sister the other day who had a terrible panic attack and, mm-hmm. you know, left, had to pull over in traffic in the rain. Uh-huh. Sit there for 45 minutes because she just couldn't go any further. And she kept saying, I'm such a loser. I couldn't, I couldn't move my car. And I said, loser, what a winner you are. You recognize that you needed a break from the road, that you wouldn't be safe for yourself or other drivers. Yeah. So you pulled over, you waited it out. Then you got back on the road and got home and yeah. then you made dinner. Hello. Yeah. That's better than I do on a good day. <laughs> I, said, I said, you know, people do not understand that we are resilient. Yeah, we, we just are. have to recognize it. Mm-hmm. We are. I know you. You've seen this before, but there's so much shame about mm-hmm. about having that mm-hmm. emotion of anxiety. There's mm-hmm. nothing shameful about it. We are an emotional species. It's one of the emotions. And again, going back to this evolutionary idea that I love because it takes us out of the equation. It's not like, oh, you have that stress response. So there's something wrong with you. Come on, toughen up. Um, It's, it's, you are experiencing one of these emotions and it is protective. What is it protective 
of what you know, there was something that triggered that anxiety attack. And I agree. She handled it beautifully. Nothing to be nothing to be ashamed of. And part of this conversation that you ladies are doing so beautifully is to bring all of these experiences out in the open. If 90% of people raise their hands and say, I experience anxiety, is there anything to be afraid of to, you know, say I'm, you know, nine out of 10 people are feeling those same feelings. And the last 10% are just, you know, like I was, it's like, oh no, I don't, I don't feel that much anxiety. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to address it like a neuroscientist. I, I, I found all of my own personal anxiety in writing this book. So, <laughs> you know, 10 out of 10 people have anxiety. Um, talk about it, uh, be open about it. Get rid right. of that shame associated with it because we all have it and it's there to help you. I tell people that anxiety doesn't make them broken. It makes them human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's, and one of the things that I love that you talk about is that there are ways of, you know, that you have this wide um, variety of coping mechanisms Yeah, yeah. Um, and a wide variety of supports, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so that, getting through something like, you know, your brother's death really is about not just about yourself, but about being able to sort of reach out and get the support and the love that you need. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. And, and yeah, just that appreciation. I talk, uh, I talk about, um, (laughs) it's really a principle that, that I've, I've come to love in my life. Um, The negative contrast effect the negative contrast effect is a effect in psychology that if you experience something really negative or bad, then anything else that's even a little bit good seems even better because you've had this, this uh, uh, negative experience. And my story in the book is um, uh, my favorite example of negative contrast effect is the very first time I ever gave a science, a real science talk at a conference um, very nervous. I was a young graduate student. I really wanted to do well. And it was this uh, uh, meeting where it was only graduate students presenting. So, you know, we we're all really nervous. The guy that went before me bombed. I mean, he didn't know his talk. It was just painful to watch him try. And like, he didn't know what his slides <laughs> said. And we're all, please leave, 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 leave. And so finally it was over. And I had practiced, I knew all of my data, I knew all of my slides, and boy, did I look good after <laughs> yeah. that. And people came up to me, it's like, oh my God, you gave the good, t- you gave such a great talk. Uh, I had professors saying, how, how did you learn how to speak so well? You're so young. And I'm like, you know, thank God for this guy that, <laughs> <laughs> that made me look so good. But, but it's like, okay, that's a funny story, but it's true that all of the quote unquote negative emotions, they are the backdrop that makes our joy sweeter. If we had mm. no negative emotions, what would joy, the, the, that amazing thing would just be uh, every day, like just having cereal every day instead of having eggs Benedict. You know, we need those those negative emotions. So we appreciate the value of that hollandaise sauce on eggs Benedict and <laughs> as cereal. Okay, I'm going to have to leave the podcast now because I'm starving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Of course, 
I'm like, this is my anxiety. I'm thinking like, oh yeah, I'm that guy that gave that, that negative talk. You know, like I'm over identifying with him right now. I'm stuck with him. I'm like, what happened to him? Okay. One of the things that you've researched so much has been movement or exercise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We were just like wondering, you know, one of the things Abby and I always say is that you know, sometimes if you're, if you're a panic sister, if you're having a lot of panic attacks or very, very anxious and you, you can't leave the house, right. You, you may not be able to do, you know, you may not be able to do kind of exercise that gets your heart rate up because your heart rate is already up, you Mm. know, especially if you're having a panic attack, Mm -hmm. but like, what, what do you see as the role of movement in sort of anxiety management and how can we incorporate it in a way that is doable for those of us who are very, very anxious. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, so, or in my case, very bad athletes. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great question. And I have a strategy for just that category of person. And the thing that people don't realize is physical activity, movement, walking counts. How many mm-hmm. people can walk? How many people need special clothes to walk right now? I, I could go walking in my podcast outfit, which (laughs) (laughs) for us, that would be yoga pants. Yes. Yoga pants, whatever, no special shoes. Um, And so what's happening there? So every time you move your body, and this has been shown specifically for walking, you are changing the neurochemical environment in your brain. And so what is that neurochemical environment? You are increasing levels of serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline, and uh, you are increasing positive mood states. You are decreasing mood states like depression and anxiety and hostility. And um, that is an immediate effect. You can go for a five, 10 minute uh, walk even around your apartment your, or your house, just walk mm-hmm. around the apartment and, and um, just get that, that blood flow going. And that can have a calming effect. I like to say that every time you move your body, it's like you're giving your brain a wonderful neurochemical bubble bath that mm, I love that. that improves your mood and you can do it anytime, any place you could walk around your house. Let's say you um, are, are in about to go into a meeting that's making you anxious, go to the stairwell, go just up one down one, go uh, walk da- up and down the hallways, just, just getting, getting that, you know, energy out and those good neurochemicals in uh, picture that neurochemical bubble bath, just making, making the uh, um, good affect go up that bad affect go down. And so that is the easiest way I have. Um, and, and that is, that is reflective of the science, the neuroscience that's going on. During the pandemic, wow. during the, the the worst of it, the lockdown, I started walk just pacing around my house. Yeah, you know because I was spent spending all my time at home, and mm-hmm. I would do my. I have a morning walk. I go to the park and I do my morning walk, but then that's done by nine o'clock, and mm-hmm. the rest of the day I was stuck at home. Whereas before that, I was out and about, and so yeah. I just started doing this lap. Yeah, from my front door into the living room, around the dining room, through the kitchen, and back to the front door. And do you know that? It added up to two miles a day. Wow. In the house. Yeah. Yeah. That was easy to do because I would just do it for a few minutes, an hour, just to get out of the chair because I was yeah. sitting there yeah. writing a book in a chair and you just mm-hmm. 
you know, and the body would just feel so much better. And so yeah. now I find myself missing that. And I do, I walk <laughs> around, I do some laps in my house. I don't, I don't make the two miles because I have to be out and about a lot, but it's really, you're right. It does not require special clothing. You can do that naked. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think this is the biggest wow of exercise in the brain. So doing regular exercise that increases your heart rate, and you can do that with walking. You can get your heart rate up. Abby, did your heart rate go up when you oh. when you were walking around the um, uh, house? You can do a little power walk around your house. She really power walks. Anything that gets your heart rate up will give you those growth factors in your neurochemical bubble bath. Those growth factors are so critical for the hippocampus because you know what it does. The more growth factors you have when you're doing this uh, exercise that gets your heart rate up, um, those growth factors help brand new brain cells grow in your mm -hmm. hippocampus. We talked about the hippocampus. It mm -hmm. is the arbiter of your own personal histories is helping you form all of those memories for the events in your life. And those brand new cells that get born with more physical movement, those cells actually get incorporated in memory circuits even more easily than the cells in your hippocampus that have been there since you were born. They work better. I think of them as teenage uh, brain cells in your hippocampus. They just <laughs> want to be involved in, every, in anything, in everything. And so um, uh, your, you get more cells in the hippocampus, your hippocampus gets big and fat and fluffy, and most importantly, your memory gets better. Now, how many people want the biggest, fattest, best working hippocampus that they could have? Raise your hand right now if you're listening to this podcast. Yes, yes. I see, I can feel all the hands going. <laughs> right. And that yeah. is the wow. And, and let me just add to that wow by reminding everybody that the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex are the two areas that are most susceptible to both aging and neurodegenerative disease states. So mm. as you are, are, are motivating yourself to go on that power walk just once a day, don't have to buy any special clothes, power walk in Costco. If you need to look at, use all of that space in that huge store. Mm -hmm. Every single time you're doing that, you're making your hippocampus bigger, fatter, fluffier, and you're not curing Alzheimer's or dementia, but you are making it so that it takes longer for that disease state to damage your hippocampus enough. So you start to get those memory deficits that are the telltale signs of true dementia. And I'm all for anything that asks me to be bigger and fluffier because everything <laughs> else in the world wants you to be smaller and thinner. So I'm not, anything that says bigger, fluffier, I'm in. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that before, but it's absolutely true. It's like skinny and bone. Right. <laughs> so when you're bone bone. you want to make it bigger and take up more space. Woo, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> if, if this talk yeah. about exercise has been interesting to you, our listeners, you really want to look up Wendy's 2018 TED Talk. Mm -hmm. uh, it has more than 11 million views for good reason. And I have to tell you, I've watched it several times, but I watched it early this morning in preparation for the podcast. And I, she does a nice little exercise bit at the end. And I did it too. It's so much fun. I, I can't remember a TED talk where I spent the last minute getting my heart rate up, but it was really, really fun. So be sure to check that out. It's going to be in our show notes. So you can just click on it or you can look it up. Uh, our listeners, you can get many more tips if you buy Wendy's new book 
called Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Wendy, thank you so much for taking time out of your super busy schedule to chat with us and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Congratulations on your new book. So I'm excited to be out there uh, with all all of us anxiety sisters together, uh, helping helping reduce anxiety and turning Mm -hmm. it into good. Every anxiety sister needs good anxiety. So thank you again, Dr. Wendy Suzuki, for joining us. Hey, anxiety sisters. Thank you so much for being with us. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or on our website, www.anxietysisters.com. Dot, dot, www.anxietysisters.com. I'm sorry. I, I assume that everyone knows that, but www.anxietysisters.com. She always, always yells at me for that. And last but not least, we have our book out, um, The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. So we invite you to take a look at it and let us know what you think. Also, if you really want to do us a favor, please put a review of this podcast on any place you listen to podcasts. It helps get the word out about the podcast. Abby's kind of smiling right now. I'm not really sure why. I'm just watching you play around with our ending. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Very funny. So, Anxiety Sisters, uh, what do we always say, Abs? Let's do it. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, Anxiety Sisters, don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Okay. Just don't go it alone. That's all we're saying. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.